talk about, in, in my mind, what is one of the, the key pieces to this entire series. You know, we've been spending, again, like I mentioned, an entire, um, you know, sort of first part of the year focused on this idea of positioning ourselves. We're looking at that fourth chapter of Philippians. But now we come this week and the, and the, and the week following particularly are centering around this theme, this concept of contentment. And I, th- I think it's just an amazingly important piece, not just to know and think about what it means when we speak of contentment from a, a perspective of a follower of Jesus, but just not, not, not even just knowing, but how do I apply it? How do, I, how do, how do we uh, uh, grow in our capacity to be content? Because so many of our mistakes are often connected in life uh, the, the things that sometimes we regret deeply are connected to a restlessness or a reactiveness that comes out of a season of discontentment. And so we're going to look at what Paul has to say about this. Again, Paul is writing the words we're about to read. He writes the book of Philippians, the letter of the church at Philippi. He's writing it again in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's confined. We talked about this. He's not free. He's not in a prison cell. He's in a house, but he doesn't have the freedom he, he's accustomed to having. He he doesn't have the ability to go and, and freely talk about Jesus. And uh, since his conversion, since his coming to grips with Christ, he went, when he went from a chief uh, persecutor, as he called it, a, a man who breathed out murders and slaughterings against the way of Christ, to a person who becomes its, its chief advocate and a pioneer into the Gentile world, planting churches wherever he could, talking about Jesus in whatever way possible. This, this Paul, uh, uh, who was at one time uh, you know, a, a rabbi, a teacher of, of a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he called himself, circumcised on the eighth day, trained in the highest schools of, of the ways of, of the Old Testament and the ways of the scripture, the ways of his people. He, he was intellectually uh, a, a giant of a man, and, and he applied all of his energies that he had he had, had um, in this abundance of learning. He was at the side of the feet of Gamaliel, which was the, the chief teacher of his day. And he combined his training, his Hebrew training with the scriptures, with a, a deep understanding of, of the Greek culture that he was immersed in. So he's this man of two cultures and easily able to move in and out of both of them. And it made him a, a great bridge for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people that he was trying to also talk to about Christ. I say all that because Paul found himself in Rome. He'd always wanted to be there, but not this way. He's under house arrest. He's confined. He's got a guard attached to him. He can't go anywhere without that. Not only that, he was used to sort of being an independent person. Paul actually took pride in the fact that he didn't require uh, people to contribute to him financially when he would go to plant a church. That was something that he really meant a lot to him. As a rabbi, he had um, had to also have a way, a means of supporting himself. That was part of the, the way in which you were raised. And Paul was a tent maker by trade. So he was, if we could think of it this way, he, he could go anywhere and sell tents, make tents and sell tents. It was like he was a, a small builder of houses, all right? Think of it that way. He could go anywhere, and he had a way of creating a, a resource for himself, an income flow, that would allow him to be free of, of feeling obligated to have others support him. So that was something that was really valuable for Paul. He would use the extra, extra income to support his team, to allow for himself to just sort of be able to do what he wanted to do for Jesus. And, and yet, having said that, he finds himself in a place where he's utterly dependent. Uh, I, I refer back to, in your handout, um, there's a piece of scripture here in Acts 20 
Now, this piece I put in there because it, it really does validate everything we just said here about Paul. It's an example, because see, Paul in Acts 20 is leaving another church that he's planted, a church called Ephesus, and in, that was planted in Ephesus, the church of the Ephesians. The letter of Ephesians is written to that, that group of people. And it does underscore what I've just, we just talked about, how he was a person who didn't want to get anything. He loved being able to freely give this message of Jesus. Look what he says here as he's preparing to leave them, and he tells them he won't be seeing them again. And look what he writes. He says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, you know I've, what Paul's saying is, I've never been in this for the money. That's what he's saying. He goes, in fact, you yourselves know that these hands have actually provided for my own necessities. I mean, and for those who are with me, I've actually worked in a way, and you're aware of this, he's telling his, his friends, this church, that I've actually worked really hard to make sure that I didn't need your support. He says, and I've actually done even more than that. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must also support others who need help. And he says that, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul lived that out. He modeled that. Here's the problem. For the first time in his life, he, in his ministry life, he's stuck. He has bills to pay because Rome insists that he pays for the rent on his, on his <laughs> house that he's under arrest in. And he has to pay the bills, food and, and everything else that's associated with it, and yet he can't work. So now he needs people to step up and support him. For the first time, he's really dependent on the believers that he needs them to come through and support him. And, and some of the churches, and he doesn't make direct appeals, but they step up fabulously. None more beautifully than, than the church at Philippi. This wonderful group of believers, these people who Paul had just continually thought highly of, they step forward by saying, you know what, we're going to help you in this time. You need our help. That is what sets up this 10th verse that we're going to look at. We're going to look at two verses in Philippians 4, verses 10 and 11. Let's look at verse 10 with what we just shared in mind. Paul says, you know what, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you just, you know, you lack the opportunity. What Paul is saying is, I know you have been wanting to help me out. And because um, what evidently there was some type of a delay on the gift. The, the, you read on in the chapter that the church at Philippi sent money with a man whose name is Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus went as the representative of the church to bring this gift to Paul to help him in his situation when he was in Rome. And so, it, but it had been delayed. We're not sure why. And, but Paul says, you know, I just, you know, I really want to tell you, uh, my heart is rejoiced. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because of you. Do you know how much joy, he says, you bring me? The, because, you know, and it's not just, Paul says, because of the gift itself. The gift itself, yes, it's a tremendous blessing. I'm so thankful for it. Thank you. But really because of what the gift reflects. He says the gift reflects a heart that is joined. I mean, you have, you have shown a love for me that is tangible and real. And I thank you. I, I, you know, no matter you know, how long it's taken to get here, I'm just so grateful that you, you care enough about me to support me at a time like this. And I want to tell you how much I deeply appreciate it. But then he lets them know one more thing. It's almost like he feels compelled to qualify what he just shared, to qualify his gratitude at some level, because he wants to make it clear to them that even though he deeply appreciates their responsiveness to his situation, he never was expecting anything. And his happiness and his joy was not contingent on whether or not those tangible needs were met. Look what he says, verse 11, because this is the key to where we're going. He says, now, not that I, it's almost like he catches himself, not that I speak in regards to need. Here's the key phrase, because I've learned in every state, whatever state I am, to be content. Basically, what Paul is saying is, 
I've learned. That is, I've, I, you know, and again, a reminder that it wasn't, it didn't come, when someone learns something, it means it didn't, didn't necessarily come naturally. It means he learned it. He, he had trained himself, Paul is saying, um, to do this. There was a technique, a particular technique, which we're going to look at more a little bit later and then in the weeks to come, that Paul was able to apply that allowed him to be content. He says, in whatever state I'm in, whatever condition, situation, circumstance of life that I find myself in, I've learned, I've trained myself how to be content, how to find joy there. Now, when Paul uses the word content, he's thinking of an abiding satisfaction that is unmovable and unshakable, that's connected to Christ. But the word that he uses, and this is all foundational, because I'm, I'm just kind of hear me out on this. The word that he uses actually in its original language was a Greek word, the word that we translate content here, was actually a word that was more closely associated with one of the schools of philosophy of Paul's day, the Stoics. The Stoics were the ones who used this a lot. And some of us may have heard the word Stoic. You know, we, when someone is Stoic, it means they're sort of, you know, unfeeling, um, you know, austere, uh, emotionless, no, you know, a, a hard wall. Uh, a Stoic was in Paul's day, again, remember I talked about how he was very um, fluid in the philosophies, the Greek philosophies that predominated, predominated his time. And so he, he is aware of the Greeks' concept, the Stoics in particular, of their concept of contentment. Now, the word itself, translated here, content, I've learned to be content, that word, which was made famous by the Stoics of Paul's day, actually meant, in its most raw form, to be content as they used it in Paul's day, it meant to be entirely self-sufficient, utterly self-sufficient. And so Paul is kind of thinking about that. He uses that word in a strategic fashion, to be entirely self-sufficient, but he's not thinking of it in a sense the same way, right? Paul sees it as something different. He says content. He's talking about something that's connected to Christ, not something that is exclusively of an individual self-sufficiency and contained. Again, it's worth noting that when he thinks of it, he's thinking more like a, uh, the earth rotating around the sun, connected together, something dependent on the Lord. Kind of summed up by what I'm going to show you, a verse, another verse, another thing that he wrote to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6, he said this. He says, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. You see how Paul links Godliness and contentment. He's linking the God-lived life, a life lived with God, with true contentment. He always did that. That differentiated him from a lot of the philosophies. And again, I, I, I was doing some research on this, on the whole idea of the Stoics and their philosophy of contentment and how it meant self-sufficiency and how prized it was in Paul's day to sort of not allow yourself to be able to be hurt in this school of thought. And uh, again, this idea for the Stoics was that in their mind, in contrast to what Paul was saying, contentment was ultimate independence. So that it was a, it was a kind of state in which a man or a, a person did not need anybody. They didn't need anybody or anything. They were sort of prizing needing nothing. And it, it would take extreme forms of expression. I was reading uh, a commentator, is a man named William Barclay, who was a Scottish preacher of the 20th century, really insightful in his analysis. And he was talking about the Stoics' view of contentment in contrast to Paul's. And he wrote this, and that's why I put this in your handout in the column over there. You look at it, I mean, when we listen to it, it almost sounds borderline ridiculous. Um, it, certainly, it is semi-funny and yet scary at the same time. You'll see what I'm talking about. It says, the Stoic believed that the only way to content 
was to abolish all desire until a man, or person we would say, had come to a stage when nothing and no one were essential to him. The Stoic proposed to eliminate all emotion, all feeling, until he had come to a stage when he did not care what had happened either to himself or to anyone else. He just don't care. Begin, he says, with a cup of household, a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself. And if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you are, go on long enough, and if you try hard enough, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. The Stoics' aim was to abolish every feeling and emotion of the human heart. He goes on to say that in order to achieve content, the Stoic abolished all desires and eliminated all emotions. Love was rooted out of the life, and caring was forbidden. As T.R. Glover suggested, I'll just kind of summarize it this way, the Stoic made of the heart a desert and called it peace. In other words, you walk, we say, well, that, you know, that's kind of a, like, no, people do that today. We do that today. Lots of us say, well, I don't really care. You know, we get hurt enough, we start to build up barriers. And those, bar those, those fences that we build up around our lives say, basically, it's like, I don't really care. It's not going to hurt me. I'm not going to allow myself to be hurt. You get hurt enough, you begin to protect oneself. And one of the ways we do is we build protection zones. And we say, oh, I'm not going to feel. I'm not going to allow myself to be hurt. You know, whatever, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any, you see what I'm saying? These are things we still use. We, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm not hurt. I'm not, I'm not going to allow myself to be hurt. I'm not vulnerable. Their idea of contentment, Paul says, in contrast to what he is pushing, had to do with this idea of sort of sectioning myself off so that I'm never hurt because I don't feel. I just don't care. And if people live, and we can live that way. And it's true, we probably won't be hurt, but we'll never really know love. It's such a contrast. In other words, the Stoics' approach was that contentment was connected to essentially heartlessness. And the context of Paul, it was to have, be heartful. It had to do with allowing emotions to be very much a part of who we are. It had to do with being open to being vulnerable, but welcoming Christ into every place of our life. It had to do with a deep satisfaction that went beyond just sealing myself off so that I'm so protected that I can't be hurt. It had to do with living in an emotionally open way that acknowledged the fact that when I love, I risk, and when I risk, I can be hurt, and yet at the same time, Christ is with me. And so even in situations that we may find confining, the reality of Christ's presence in my life creates an opportunity. And so this whole idea of contentment is really connected to something that is more having to do, when Paul uses it, with this idea of being satisfied at a very deep level, at a level that sometimes it goes beyond just something that is, can be manipulated on ourselves. It's, a, it's to be truly at peace in, in, a, in a deeply profound and unshakable way. So it, it has so much to do with a stance. It's both a stance and a condition, this idea of contentment that he's talking about. So what I would like to do in the, in the time that we have left is sort of take this and push into it and sit with this idea of what it means for a follower of Jesus. And I know that maybe, I, I know that not necessarily everybody is quite at this point yet, but, but many of us have made, a vast majority of us have made a decision to follow Christ. For a follower of Christ, one of the things we can learn, about, again, note about contentment is, it, as, as is, we're told here, is that contentment is something, this is important, that can be learned, all right? We can learn it. It's something we can learn. In other words, you and I can grow in it. Most of us are not by nature prone to contentment. 
we, we are by nature prone to restlessness. There's a wandering in our heart, a tendency to become discontented. What once thrilled us doesn't thrill us. We want something else. There is this kind of contentment issue that is always a part of our life. And the reason it's such a big deal is because oftentimes it's out of our discontentment that we make really big mistakes. And those mistakes have consequence. And frequently, those, those that wreck, see, in Paul's case, his strength was that he was an initiator and a change agent. So when he would come into a situation in life that was confining, his first move would be to try to do something about it, to change it. That was his overall personality. For him, what a check looked like was learning how to say, you know, I'm not going to react here. I'm not going to try to control this thing. I'm going to learn how to trust God in my confinement. So the bigger challenge for him. Now, others of us, some of us are like that. You know, our, our tendency is when we're feeling pressured in or fenced in or stuck or discontentment is starting to well up, we want to we do something about it. We're going to do something about it. I'm going to change this situation. I'm going to make a move. I'm going to do something. I'm going to break this up. I'm going to start over. I mean, that, that mentality is right there. Others of us, we, we get under pressure and we start to pull back. We, we, we tighten the walls. We, we begin to, to pull inward. And we, we actually do the, the exact opposite. We get depressed. We get discouraged. We don't want to do anything. We're not going to even address it. It's like we're just kind of like stuck, apathetic, easy to be cynical, easy to allow resentment to creep into our lives. And we're not looking for solutions. We're not finding the joy in our situation. We're just kind of dissatisfied. And oftentimes, it's, think about this way. Paul was in his situation. Why? Because he had wanted to honor Christ. His confinement was a product of his commitment. And yet at the same time, you know, we understand that there are times where we, because we're committed, we also may make a decision that's going to honor God, right, in some way. But that, that decision sometimes confines us in a way. It sort of puts us in a situation where we're stuck. Because on the one hand, we almost know too much to know that if I'm reckless here, I'll be foolish. But at the same time, I'm so unhappy where I am. And so I'm stuck. And sometimes that, 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 is, that place is a hard place to be. Because so much of us wants to just throw caution in the wind. And the other part of us goes, but I know that's not wise. But I'm so unhappy here. You see what I'm saying? That's what we're talking about. Paul was getting it that he was talking about. Because again, his tendency is to want to make a change fast. Do something. And God, he says, had taught. He says, look, I've, look, I've learned. I've learned how to check that tendency in my own heart. Again, know yourself at some level. That when I feel, Paul, it's almost like Paul said, when I feel that in me, I've learned how to trust God with my life, to settle my soul, to not allow this feeling to start to push me in a direction where I'm reacting. And I think that's hugely important because I think a lot of times there are some of, some of us maybe find ourselves in a situation where we want to run, we want to escape, we want to call it quits. Maybe it has to do with something that's connected with you know, our life, our family, our marriage, our, um, you know, our workplace. And, and, it, and it's just that it's not like we have a clear path out. We're just so dissatisfied. Or we, we're stuck. We feel stuck. We feel paralyzed. We feel confined. And, and I'm going to tell you, there, there's a part of us at times that wants to give expression, listen, to our discontentment. We want to give expression to our discontentment. 
There was something about that phrase that stuck with me. That in our desperate places, in our pressure places, in our places, that we, in our places of discontentment, we want to give expression to our discontentment. And that is when some of the worst decisions in life are made. I, I'm telling you, a lot of times it happens. Now, historically in our culture, there is one grouping of years. There's a, part, a life stage where this tends to happen more than other times. We call that sometimes the midlife crisis, those middle years, where people often in a spirit of discontentment throw away things that it's taken years to build. But I'm telling you right now, as we, our culture is a culture where people are living longer and longer, I'm going to suggest that it can have restlessness, a kind of discontented recklessness can sit with us in our, into our 60s and 70s. I'm going, to, I'm going to take it back even the other direction. You know, I, I've got, you know, children who now are young men and women moving into their college life, and some of them are looking on, towards the other side of college. And, and like many 20-somethings and young, those who are in their, in their 30s as well, they're sort of looking at the economy and looking at the world that we're living in, and, and, and there's this kind of collective anxiety about, well, man, what about my situation here? Yeah, sure, there's a couple of people every now and then who, who really hit it big, but for a lot of us, this is, a, this is kind of a scary time. And in that place, and I'm sort of not happy with where I'm at, why isn't it opening up for me, you know? And in that place, be very careful, right, though, in those places of making reckless, foolhardy decisions, a lot of us, we have started down a path, and that temptation will be to want to just escape, take the quick out, and be careful because the way of wisdom, the way of the Lord, the way of contentment that God wants to teach us how to grow in means that we don't just react. We don't just panic out and, and, and begin to say either I don't care or just do foolish things. Neither one of those things are good options. Learn to be content. Learn, and again, that's not, uh, that's not lack, that doesn't mean we don't have a- ambitions or dreams, that we're not going to have an action plan. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that goes deeper. It goes inside of us. It's connected to an overarching attitude of life that allows us to hold our ground when a part of us just wants to be really um, self-destructive. Throwing, like I said, when we're done, by the time we're done, we may have had a temporary buzz or thrill, or a real, but the, the truth is the residue behind us the wake, the loss, what we gave up so quickly. Some of us are in places where there's a real strong desire to just be reckless. Don't do it. Learn to, to welcome the Lord into these places. The second piece here, for us who, who would follow the Lord, it, it, contentment is not just something that we can learn and grow in our capacity to do. So we, we grow in our ability to do this. But secondly, it's something that's connected to the claim of Jesus over our lives. It's like acknowledging, it's what we sang about, it's like acknowledging God's claim over our lives. What I mean by that is, this, is some of us have taken the name of Jesus as our own. We have. And if we've welcomed him into our hearts and said, Lord, I want you to be in my life, I want you to be my Savior, I welcome you in as my Lord. Some of us have gone in the waters of baptism and we've, been, we've felt the cleansing stream over our lives and we've said, Lord, I surrender my life to you, I give you my life, I, I want to honor you with my life, I give you my will. I, I choose to accept, listen, your name in my life. And we may not always live up to what we've promised. We, we, may, we may need to remind ourselves from time to time about what we have chosen to do. Like, you know, I'm going to press that refresh button. Refresh and remind myself again that in these places where I'm tempted to do foolish things, that I made a commitment. I gave my life to him. I welcomed him into my life. I made a promise. I, 
I, I made a choice. I have his name in my life, and I recognize his claim over my life. And so, Lord, I'm going to live for you. I may never get it completely right. I, I won't. I may at times really struggle, and I may fall. But you know what, Lord? I'm committed. By your grace, I will follow you all the days of my life. And when I leave this world, and I will, and when I do, what I leave behind, may it be a blessing. And may it be something that shoots through time. May it be a testimony of your grace at work in a person's life who maybe wasn't, who was not maybe always at his best or her best, but sought to live well for you, to be a growing person and to make a difference in the life of others while we were here. You see, this is what we're talking about. Now, we can't do that when we get in these discontented places and everything in us just wants to run and escape and make a, make a you know, rational, flailing away kind of changes that ultimately produce nothing of real wisdom and growth in our lives. The way of the Lord is the way of the wise. He has things to teach us. Let me, I'll, it'll summarize it like in, in 1 Corinthians 6.20. It summarizes it like this. For you are bought at a price. Listen, loved ones. We've been bought with a price. Jesus' own life, his own lifeblood. And therefore glorify, I would put in parentheses, honor God contentedly. Therefore glorify, honor God contentedly in your body, and in your spirit. These are God's. If you made a decision to give them to him. Contentment learns to, to yield, itself, to remind itself that I, I am his. I live for him. I live with him. And so, Lord, teach me your ways. Help me not to run recklessly when the things in me are just flying around. Thirdly, lastly, it's something that I've noted. Contentment oftentimes is grown in the garden of adversity. We've talked about this. I mean, although it's hard to understand, and I suppose it's even a little bit counterintuitive, but it's in the crucible of suffering that satisfaction is sometimes found in its most concentrated form. It's like, it, you know, I'm not a golfer, but I've, I've been told that there is a sweet spot where when the ball is struck, it just is a sweet spot. I, as a bait, I grew up, one thing, I'm sorry for the sports analogy if it's not your thing, all right? But I grew up playing baseball and soccer, and when I remember playing baseball, I remember there were times, when we used to, if you have a wooden bat, it's really true. If you had a ball thrown, and it was hard, and it, did hit, it hit the bat, a lot of times you'd feel it in your hands, right? But there was a certain spot when, when it hit, boom, it, you didn't, it was like you were swinging through air, and it hit the sweet spot on the bat, and it was like, boom, and you didn't even feel it, right? And it just goes that sweet spot, in every suffering place, there is the ability of the grace of God. There is a unique sweet spot that I think is only known to those who share in the fellowship of suffering. I do. That I think it's, 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 it's one of those, this is what I'm saying, it's one of those things that only really is known in the place of great pain. And that's why I've often looked at other people's lives because I don't know if I've ever experienced. I was thinking about it. I was going, Lord, I, I don't know. And I'm not, I don't want, I'm not rushing into this, Lord. It's not like, please give me the opportunity to feel the sweet spot of your grace because of suffering, you know? It's not my first reaction. And I, and I think there would be something wrong with us if we said, oh, I can't wait to suffer. So and now on the other side of the coin, we say, but in that suffering place, there is a unique opportunity that exists nowhere else. I call it the blessedness of the Matthew 5.4. And that's what this one is. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said, for they shall be comforted. The Matthew 5.4s. 
that place, that's what I'm talking about. That's the place that it's only the hurting in the morning can know. There's a unique grace that shows up in the most disappointing places. And so we may feel brushes of disappointment, but in times of great pain, there comes this miracle of grace, the sweet spot, that when it's there, it's just there. And it's hard to explain, but God visits us with his unique peace and joy. It's, 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 it's an unshakable reality. And I've, 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 I've sat and wondered at times, people have said, what is going on in you? And I'll say something like, well, I just, you know, God, I don't know. It's just the Lord is so real to me right now. It's like, I see it, you know? And, and I, I think a lot of times, you know, maybe, maybe for some of us who are hurting or feel trapped or feel confined, like Paul was confined, and that, that we need to learn how, how to, to trust the Lord and how to find the sweetness that he offers in the place of, of confinement rather than be reckless and foolish in some cases, some of us, you know, we've got stuff in our past. It's like it's breathing down our neck. And there's a part of us that wants to go back to stuff that we've been free of for a long time. And that tendency to want to go back or to go back into family patterns that we go, you know what, I'll never want to be like that. And yet there's a part of us that's feeling like, but, you know. And the Lord wants to teach us how to, how to grow past that, how to be strong, how to establish new things, how to, how to keep a line of blessing flowing in our life, not to get stuck and have to go back and start all over again and rebuild momentum. Not good. That's not the Lord's way. He, he will be with us. There's no question. He will not abandon us. But it's far better to make good decisions. Some of us, may the Lord give us wisdom. You know, some of us right now, we're hurting. We need his grace to show up like a gift. We really do. We need that. Others of us, we're, we're, things are going well. May his, may his grace still be upon our lives. May it be there. May we grow in our ability to be content, whether we're blessed in, in amazing ways. May we not forget you, Lord, in our blessing. Or whether we're crushed by the inevitable, unfair things of life in that place, Lord, may your grace come to me. May I not forget you. Either way, Lord. Keep me before you always. This is the Lord's will for us. Let's, let's just pray, and then we'll have our time of giving and close the song. Lord, uh, you know, we, we've been able to sit here and ponder, and we pray that we'd be open to your words, because your words are really the, they're the way for us to go. You said, I, you know, Peter said to you, Lord, you know, where are we going to go, Lord? You are the words of life. You're the words of life. You know, we don't even understand always, but you are the words of life. This we believe. We have come to believe, and we will walk with you, Lord. And so a lot of times it's not about, it's not about being resigned. It's about submitting to your design. Lord, teach us the difference. Teach us the difference between resignation and designation because you're the one who crafts a song for us to sing at every place of our lives. And I just really pray, Lord, that you would keep us from foolish things, things that have no real payoff, that are just going to break people's hearts and hurt a lot of people. I pray that instead you would, you would just teach us to, to live well for you. Not, we're not going to get it right all the time, but we will live well by your grace. And when, we're, and we, when we do this, Lord, other people are affected in amazing ways. Just as real as people are affected by bad decisions, people, some of whom aren't even born yet, will be affected by good decisions. So teach us your ways and give us the gift of contentment. Sing your songs through us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, God.